0: Welcome to episode 40 of the Policy Options Podcast. I'm Alex Shadid, Outreach Assistant at the IRPP. Last year, the Liberal government followed through on one of its campaign promises by laying out a plan to reform Canada's retirement income system. The reform followed several rounds of negotiations between Ottawa, the provinces, and the territories, and was touted by the Prime Minister as a step that would provide Canadians with a more secure and dignified retirement. One of the pillars of the plan was an increase in Canada Pension Plan benefits, But that fact alone doesn't paint the whole picture of the real impact the reform will have on Canadians. When dealing with a policy portfolio that has so many interdependent parts, it's always important to look at how changing one piece of the puzzle might affect all other pieces. That's what Bob Baldwin and Richard Shillington did in their new IRPP report titled Unfinished Business, Pension Reform in Canada. They found that when taken all together, the government's reforms are both problematic and incomplete. I caught up with Bob Baldwin on Skype to find out why. Mr. Baldwin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, glad to be with you. So take us back to June 2016. What were some of the main reasons why the Liberal government decided to enact this pension reform process?
1: Well, um, it it has a a bit of a history to it that dates back to uh, at least 2008, 2009. A number of provincial governments had launched inquiries into problems being faced by workplace pension plans in Canada, and one of the common conclusions that was reached in those uh, uh, inquiries was that there's a serious potential problem down the road resulting from the fact that a declining portion of the workforce is participating in workforce pension plans. So a number of provincial governments, uh, began pushing for an increase in benefits under the Canada Pension Plan as a way to respond to that problem. And uh, in June of 2010, the federal finance minister of the time, Jim Flaherty, indicated that he was actually supportive of a step in that direction. However, those talks were canceled uh, in 2013 by uh, the then Prime Minister Harper. Um, as a result, the province of Ontario uh, said it would implement its own version of an expanded CPP, and when the Liberals took office, they had run on a campaign promise to uh, revive a discussion with the provinces about CPP reform, and that's the, um, what led to the agreement among federal and provincial finance ministers in 2016 to introduce a small increase in CPP benefits.
0: So would you mind describing what was included in this reform in 2016?
1: Well, uh, the key elements were that there was to be a small increase in the benefit rate under the CPP. It would go the benefit rate since 1966 had been 25 percent of pre-retirement earnings, and that was to be increased to 33 and a third percent. In addition, uh, from 19 66 onwards, the maximum level of earnings uh, to which uh, on which people made contributions and earned benefits was basically uh, average wages and salaries. And the reforms of 2016 also included an increase in the maximum covered earnings by another 14%, which would take it up to around 63,000 a year. So those were the two key things. Um, Garnering less note, but not uh, not unimportant, is the um, fact that the new benefits were to be fully funded, um, which was not the case with benefits uh, that accrued under the plan from 1966 to the present. So those are three of the key things, Alex.
0: So you mentioned that it was a campaign promise that the Liberals were running on. Would you say that this reform process, I guess, emulated that in some ways, whether or not it was rushed or anything. Do you, do you see, in a, in a sense, any difference between the way that this round of pension reform was uh, created versus previous rounds of uh, attempts at pension reform?
1: Well, I do. I, I am a uh, uh, someone who lived through the great pension reform debate from the mid-70s to the mid-80s, and there is one very stark point of contrast to which I'd like to draw attention, and that is in the 70s and 80s, Uh, The federal government and a number of provincial governments produced um, uh, lengthy and and high quality analytical background reports on the state of the retirement income system. They identified options for reform and encouraged uh, broadly based public consultations on the reforms. Uh, This time around, we seem to have leapt right into the reform exercises with an absolutely minimal. analytical work being done on the part of governments and and minimal uh consultations so, uh, although i will add in fairness that the provinces of ontario and quebec and uh, some degree bc did organize uh, significant public consultations but the federal government uh did little or nothing in this area
0: in, in what ways would you say that those lack of public consultations reflected in the overall product of the reform
1: well i think that that part of what has happened uh Especially if we look at the CPP reform alongside the change in the age of eligibility for OAS and uh, a change to the Guaranteed Income Supplement is we've ended up with reforms that um, each one of which exists in a silo, and I think that the uh, analytical work and consultation process might have guided people towards a more holistic approach to uh, pension reform, and in the absence of a holistic repro- approach, we've ended up with uh, reforms that will have actually very little payoff for, or uh, well, the CPP reforms will have very little payoff for low earners. In addition, um, there is what I would describe as an, an absence of foresight in the reforms, and I mean that in the sense that there are certain identifiable demographic and labor market trends that we should be taking account of in designing our retirement income programs. And for the most part, they uh, were not taken into account in these recent reforms.
0: In the study, you and your co-author Richard Shillington identified the fact that a lot of these reforms are counteracting. Uh, Would you mind explaining how they counteract each other and what effect that has on the ultimate outcome in terms of payout?
1: Well, one of the uh, issues we have with our retirement income system is that we have the earnings replacement uh, objective embodied in the Canada Pension Plan, uh, but it interacts with the income-tested guaranteed income supplement, which is designed to help achieve a minimum level of income for the elderly. And the guaranteed income supplement... uh, Reduces by fifty cents on the dollar for every dollar received from the Canada Pension Plan. So right off the bat, if you if you're an older person in an income range where you're eligible for some GIS benefits and you're receiving CPP benefits, the value of the CPP benefits is being diminished by fifty cents right off the top. But that's just the beginning of a complex and unfortunate story for older people with low incomes, because in addition to the Guaranteed Income Supplement, we've got seven provinces offering income-tested benefits for the low-income elderly. They also have a tax-back rate of 50 cents on the dollar. So if your income is low enough, you get a dollar from CPP, you lose 50 cents on GIS, you lose another 50 cents on your provincial top-up, and you're no further ahead. So asking people in that situation to contribute more to the CPP provides absolutely no payoff for them. Uh, and and that's not the end of the story either because some provinces also offer uh, income tested benefits related to housing and medical conditions. So you can actually be made worse off by getting more income from uh, CPP and almost all other sources other than old age security. There's a real problem with these overlapping tax and tax back rates. And Richard and I try to underline very strongly in the paper the need for a coordinated effort to try to minimize the uh, income range over which these multiple tax back and tax rates apply.
0: So you highlighted in your paper um, the fact that pension reform really is a, a, a question of intergovernmental relations, federalism, et cetera. Do you think that the negotiations that took place between the federal government and the provinces may have colored the way that this uh i guess this oversight that ended up resulting in the ultimate reform that the liberal government took
1: um, i think the the short answer is yes it's it's very difficult to document though alex because uh, there is a decided lack of uh, transparency in the uh in the decision-making process uh I would point out too that that the decision-making processes are, are somewhat fragmented in the in the following sense that any amendment to the Canada Pension Plan that's going to uh, affect the benefits provided by the plan or the contributions to the plan has to be agreed to by the Government of Canada on the one side, and two-thirds of the provinces with two-thirds of the population on the other. However, there are other components of the retirement income system like the Old Age Security program and GIS which don't require any provincial consent. Notwithstanding that legal reality, it is important to try to coordinate what happens under all of those programs. So as I say, you've got a bit of fragmentation here, and you've got an additional problem of the lack of transparency in the CPP negotiations. Plus, as we also point out in our paper, uh, tax provisions become very important in this realm as well, and each of the two levels of government uh, has its own domain with respect to taxation, but one would wish that as the tax system applied to the elderly, that there was some effort to coordinate what was going on at the two levels of government.
0: So say the federal government recognized the shortcomings of its reform. Are there any particular levers that you think it can utilize um, uh, unilaterally to sort of remedy this, uh, whether it be sort of reforms to different parts of the tax code or, or et cetera?
1: Uh, well, I, I, there are things that it could do. Um, uh, I guess my preference would be that there be some ongoing dialogue with provinces, uh, probably under the umbrella of the uh, semi-annual meetings of federal and provincial finance ministers in hopes that all would move in the same direction. But there are, on this overlaps problem, I mean, the, the uh, uh I, I think the federal government needs to review its habit over the last forty years of uh, continually increasing the income guarantee to the elderly through GIS rather than OAS. I understand the fiscal advantage in uh, increasing GIS as opposed to OAS, but but we're creating, I think, quite serious incentive problems uh, for people with low earnings before retirement and low incomes afterwards. In addition, uh, within the federal tax system, we've now got uh, a number of different credits targeted at low-income people, including the low-income elderly. Uh, my impression is they're not very well-coordinated. They create a, a bit of a roller coaster of effective marginal tax rates, and uh, through overlaps, they create very high marginal rates for some people with low incomes. And I think that all of that needs some cleaning up. But as I say, it would be preferable to do it in coordination with the provinces, because a number of provinces also have credits targeted at low-income people, and uh, ideally, we'd uh, reduce the number of them and try to get the marginal tax rates down.
0: Would you mind expanding upon your point about uh, the incentive problem relative to GIS and Oh yes, because I find that that does tie into a lot of the demographic problems and the labor market changes that the government is experiencing, and why it might be a reaction to it.
1: Well, we have, uh, we have a situation now where where if you had relatively low earnings and you knew that uh, based on your current uh, retirement savings arrangements that you were likely to be drawing uh, benefits from GIS there would be very little reason for you to uh, uh, certainly to save through a tax-deferred vehicle like an RRSP or even a workplace pension plan, because the net payoff would be very slim. The other thing that's happening now that that, uh, adds another dimension to the incentives concern is that we've had quite an increase over the last 20 years in the portion of the population aged 60 to 70 that is still in the paid labor force. But once again, if you're uh, over 65, you've got a low pension income, and you're thinking, well, gee, I might like to supplement this with paid employment. Uh, the payoff from doing so is really minimized by the likely loss in GIS benefits, and if you're in one of the seven provinces with a top out, you lose those too. So there's really not much, not much opportunity for. Uh, Older people with low incomes to improve their situation through paid employment, and I think that's that's really an an unfortunate, uh, significant disincentive problem.
0: You mentioned part of the, uh, I guess, impetus for the reforms was the fact that there was major structural problems, and whether or not these would be, uh, I guess, the current regime of pension reform of pension uh, delivery would be sustainable in the long term. Do you think that, given the reforms that the Liberals have made this year? that this can work in the long term? Or is this sort of, I guess, a Band-Aid solution that I guess is, a, as many people put it, a ticking time bomb?
1: Yeah. Um, well, let me say two things about this that may, may seem somewhat contradictory. And in some ways, the, the, the problem that I think people were hoping to address through CPP expansion has only been minimally addressed by the CPP reform. Uh, I've already mentioned the problem for low earners, but that even if we look at people with sort of earnings above thirty thousand, say in the thirty to ninety thousand dollar range, uh, the reforms are a pretty small step in the direction of helping those people replace their pre-retirement earnings, and I. I've summarized this situation uh, in the past by saying that in, in one way that the CPP reform did too little for those people who don't belong to a workplace pension plan and did more than was what was needed for people who belong to a, a good workplace pension plan like, say, the Ontario Teachers Plan or the CN Pension Plan or something, a plan of that sort. Um, on the other hand, I, I don't want to be totally dismissive of of what, of what the reforms either, because the level of benefits under the CPP has been a contested issue in this country from 1966 onwards. And there have been several uh, moments in that 50-year history when, Proponents of CPP expansion have come close to getting what they wanted, but have ended up being rebuffed at the 11th hour. So in some ways, there is some political significance to this reform, in that it's the first time that a government has actually increased the retirement benefits in spite of 50 years of some people pleading for it. On the other hand, the step they took in that direction was so small that uh, for people with middle and upper-middle earnings, you're still going to have to get a significant part of your retirement income from some source other than CPP if you're going to maintain your standard of living in retirement.
0: So would you say that the form that the pension reform took is a reflection of, I guess, fiscal pressures on the government? Because is it a situation where you have kind of uh, not enough money being delivered or enough money but being directed at the wrong
1: demographics? Funny you should, you should put it in terms of fiscal terms. They they Bearing in mind that the CPP is an off-budget item for both the federal and the provincial governments, some of the normal fiscal considerations that are at play in government decision-making are, are not uh, front of center with respect to the CPP. But um, it, there has always been a very strong lobby against any increase in CPP benefits coming from the financial services industry and especially from the insurance industry. And uh, that lobby has proven very effective in previous rounds of pension reform debate, and I suspect it had an important role in constraining the size of the CPP benefit increase this time around, but but it's the first time that We've seen governments uh, move even in a tiny incremental step towards uh, increased CPP benefits.
0: So what would you like to see from the government in terms of an initiative to remedy the problems that you identified in your study with the pension reform?
1: Well, uh, I I think that's step one for me. I mean, I I have uh, preferred changes to the design and In public pension programs, but I think that for me, my my preferred first step would be for the government to take some responsibility for putting some decent analytical work into the public domain on how we achieve retirement income adequacy in the future. I'd like them to lay out pension reform options and have them encourage some uh, well-rounded discussion with all stakeholders on, on how we move ahead.
0: Do you think that the government has really indicated any willingness to re-examine pension reform following the June 2016, I guess, renegotiations and release of the modified pension reform program? Um,
1: I I wish I could point to some obvious visible signs of it, uh, but I'm not able to do so. But (laughs) I think you asked where I'd like things to start, and uh, that's where I'd like them to start.
0: Hmm. And what kind of policy solutions do you imagine, I guess, remedying the issues that you found in the pension reform from June
1: 2016? Well, I, I, you know, once once again, I I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because this is a complex area, and and good policy should be really well grounded in good analytical work. So I'm going to acknowledge that I, that I have some preferences. Uh, that, that themselves need uh, analytical testing. Uh, for me, I, I would not increase required contributions or benefits for people with earnings below about $25,000 a year. And so that's, uh, for me, an important point of departure from what we saw the government do in the recent past. I think Ontario was on the right track in only mandating participation. Uh, by people who don't already belong to a good workplace pension plan, and that's not part of the current proposals. But uh, I'd say especially if we were going to do anything more of a CPP, my opening bias supports the uh, Ontario position rather than the federal position. I probably, though, for people who don't belong to a good workplace pension plan, would support a higher CPP benefit rate. than the government has currently proposed to introduce, and I'd also look at a higher level of contributory earnings. But the one other reform that we haven't touched on at all here is the future value of the old-age security benefits is another really important issue that's got no attention in the discussions that have gone on over the last couple of years. And the OAS uh, plays a very important role in our uh, retirement income system, But if average wages and salaries start increasing in relation to inflation, as I expect them to in the future, as does the chief actuary, the OAS benefits are going to start declining in relation to wages and salaries. And I think that's a very troublesome development that needs to be addressed.
0: And lastly, one of the problems that you identified in your study was that there was, I guess, an element of policy silos. Uh, in terms of the way that the pension reform went about, in terms of looking at one issue related to uh, GIS and then completely forgetting other aspects of it. How do you surpass or, or overcome an issue like that when you're dealing with something so complex as pension reform?
1: Well, that's that's. I'm glad you asked the question. I think that as Richard and I said in the paper, I mean, I think governments really do have to take some responsibility for Uh, analytical leadership in this area, and uh, the governments, to to be fair to them, they have received very little pressure from stakeholders to take a holistic and future-looking approach, and yet, given the complexity of the system and its responsiveness to changing economic labor market demographic conditions, you need to be both holistic and forward-looking, and I think governments are going to have to provide some leadership in this area.
0: Mr. Baldwin, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Alex.
0: If you want to read Bob Baldwin and Richard Shillington's study, just follow the link in the podcast description. It's filled with awesome charts, graphs and data. So if you're a total fiscal policy wonk, this study's definitely for you. It also hit me today that this is our 40th episode. So on behalf of everyone here at the IRPP, I just want to say thanks to all our listeners for the support you've given to the podcast so far. If you want to check out our other 39 episodes, just search Policy Options Podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. If you want to suggest a topic for our 41st episode, you can do so by writing on the IRPP's Facebook wall, sending an email to policyoptions@irpp.org, at IRPP.org, or tagging at IRPP or myself at Alex Shadid in a tweet. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.